the most important commandment was, uh, Jesus' response to the person who was questioning him was, come on, you can say it with me, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He said, this is the first and the greatest commandment. He said, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, Jesus said, hang on these two commandments. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we are called to lay down our lives for each other. This is love. That God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his one and only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love, say it with me, never fails. Love. This is the first and the greatest commandment. This is what I have called you to, Jesus told the disciples, to love. Two weeks ago, while many of us were gathered here in this room at about exactly this time, less than 200 miles from us, uh, there were families who were being notified of the horrific uh, events at the Pulse nightclub. And their lives were changed forever. While many of us were here, maybe not having seen the news and having no idea what was happening, there were other families who were trying to piece together uh, their lives after a horrible tragedy and trying to make sense of it all. And there's been a lot said in the last two weeks about that, a lot said about guns and a lot said about terrorism and violence and people seem to quickly take sides. And if you listen for long, one of the things that you'll hear uh, people say is uh, that love is what we need, that love overcomes hate. Uh, there's a, a sign even, or a picture, I think we may have a, a picture, um, and you'll see pictures like this. That actually, whether the person making the sign knows it or not, is quoting scripture, love wins, love. But does it really? Does love really overcome evil? Does love really put back together the lives that have been devastated? Does love really overcome all the things that you might choose to blame it on? Does love really do that? And if so, what kind of love does that? Because... A lot of people talk about love, and they talk about it in a lot of different ways. In some ways that I don't recognize the same kind of love that maybe they're talking about. Does love overcome? And if so, what kind of love overcomes? And if love can overcome hatred and violence and terrorism and all the different things that we talk about, can love put back together a broken marriage? Can love restore a relationship between a parent and a child that's been devastated? Is love that powerful? Can love really overcome anything? The Bible seems to say that the answer is yes. But I think it's important for us to know 
We need to know what the Bible defines as love. What is love? What is this love that's so potent and so powerful that it it can change beauty, bring beauty out of ashes, and bring triumph out of tragedy? Jesus, in his very last conversation with the disciples, uh, began to talk to them after he had washed their feet. And we've been looking at this speech for the last several weeks, this, this final conversation that Jesus had with the disciples. And like any good teacher, as Jesus begins to give this speech to the disciples as they're about to graduate, they're about to, they're about to see Jesus crucified and experience the resurrection, they're gra- going to graduate from their three years with Jesus, he begins his speech off with his thesis in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And he, he says to them this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so also you should love each other. And then he said, by this will everybody know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. This is what Jesus said. And then he goes on and he begins to talk to the disciples about some other things. And and at the height of his speech, at the height of his commencement address to the disciples, he comes back to this theme. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to John 15, verses 12 and following. Because this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to, to get our minds wrapped around what is this love that Jesus is talking about? This love that is so important that it trumps every other commandment. In fact, it completes every other commandment. That you can... You can, if you possess this kind of love, you will fulfill every other commandment that was ever set forth in the Bible. What kind of love is that? Jesus talks to us about it in John 15, verses 12 and following. Here's what he said. My command is this. Now, he's already told them what the command is. This should not be new information. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for everything that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So what kind of love is he describing? What kind of love can piece back a broken marriage, can restore broken relationships, can bring enemies together at the table? What kind of love is Jesus commanding us to have? If this is the most important commandment, if this is the thing that Jesus said above all things else, all other things, if you want people to know that you're my disciples, this is what you need to do. You need to love each other. We need to understand what kind of love it is. And I want us to look at three aspects from this passage because I think it helps us define the kind of love that Jesus is describing. I want to look at the measure of love. I want to look at the evidence of love. And I want to look at the consequence of love. The measure of love, the evidence of love, and the consequence of of love. If you're a note taker on the back of your uh, worship guide this morning, there's a place for you to write some of these things down. You can look up some of these passages of scripture uh, later as you study throughout the week. Let's first start with the measure of love. Now, anytime you measure anything, there has to be a standard by which you are measuring it. I, I grew up in a house um, with uh, a dad who was pretty handy. 
He's a good mechanic and a good carpenter. And, and a lot of times I would see if they were building something, you, you ever known somebody, they just kind of measure it based on the size of their arm or they pace out in the yard, you know, so many steps and they know that's about how many feet that is. Uh, that's, a, that's okay, but we all know that's not exactly right. There are exact standards of measurements, uh, whether it comes to how much, how we weigh something, how we measure the length or the height of something, the depth of something, even time. I, actually, many of you have heard Greenwich Mean Time. I don't know if you ever knew this, but there's an actual place, and I think we have a picture of it. Um, this is the place where for years the official standard for time and date was kept. It's in England. They don't do that anymore. Now they've got you know, uh, atomic clocks that keep track of time based on, uh, based on the movement of the planet. But this, for many, many years, was where the official standard of time and date uh, was kept. I don't know if you've ever heard of a place, or maybe some of you have traveled uh, to, to a place in France called Severs. This place here, I think we have a picture of that. This is the official place where all standards for measurement is maintained. It's called the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. So if you want to know what an exact meter is, this place houses the exact measurements of a meter, the standard by which you measure a meter. Actually, we have another picture. This is the official, uh, the official uh, kilogram right here. That's it. So if you want to know what's the standard for a kilogram, what is a kilogram, there it is, and it is housed inside that building. There has to be a standard by which you measure anything. This is how we know what an actual inch is, what an actual yard is, what a pound is, what a kilogram is, how long an hour is. There are standards of measurements that are kept in real places. So what is the standard for measuring love? How do you know how to measure love? How much you love something, how much you our love. See, our culture wants us to believe that the standard for love is completely subjective, meaning that you measure love based on what you feel at any given time, that it is completely up to an individual. Whatever makes someone happy, whatever brings fulfillment, whatever meets their wants and their needs, that must be love. That if there's no standard measurement for love, there's no standard description for love. And so that standard works between people as long as both people's needs are being met. Then we call that love. So if I'm in a relationship with someone and I have what you want and you have what I want, then we call that love. But is there another standard? Is there something beyond just what meets my wants and what meets your needs? Ultimately, see that idea, that standard that there is no uh, objective standard for love, but everything is subjective and based on what the individual wants. Ultimately, that makes love of self the highest standard of love because it has to meet my needs. It has to make me happy. It has to fulfill me. That's how I measure love, which means that I'm ultimately measuring it based on what I want. That the ultimate standard for love is me. But that's not what Jesus said in John chapter 15 in these verses. He actually points us, points his disciples to, to just a few hours from there. He says, I'm getting ready to show you the standard by which you measure love. That the cross of Jesus is the standard by which love is measured. Listen to what he said in 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10. This is love. Not that we loved God. In other words, love is not defined based on your love. You don't get to define it. 
This is love, not that I love my wife, and I do love my wife. This is love, not that I love my kids, and I do love my kids. This is love, not that I love all of you, and I love our church, and I do love all of you, and I do love our church. But that's not how you measure love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. There is a standard by which we measure love that is outside of us. It's outside of me. That he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. John 15, verses 9, 12, and 13. Listen to what he said. As the Father, as the Father has loved me. He's giving us something to measure by here. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Love each other. As I have loved you. There it is. Do you hear the standard of measurement? The standard by which we love? So as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And now you are to love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. The cross of Jesus is the standard measurement for love. Now, I I thought about this for a while. You know, when we talk about, I know in, in, in the United States, we're the only ones who, who don't use the metric system. So when we talk in the United States about measuring in, in inches and in feet, or if you go to another part of the, uh, the world and they measure in centimeters or, or meters, I started thinking, well, maybe we need to say something. We need to come up with a word that defines how much we love based on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I thought of this. We should talk about it in terms of splinters. If you think about the cross of Christ... You know, and, and we say, I measure, I measure my love in, in, I love you five splinters worth of the cross. I love you a hundred splinters worth of the cross. That, that we could never fully love to the full extent of God's love for us as displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus is the standard measurement for love. That's what we talk about. That's what God is putting before us. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not talking about some some feel-good idea or concept that that if you just write down on a poster, love wins, and you hold it up at at a protest or at a rally, listen, I'm not opposed to that. I'm for that. I'm okay with that. But you have to understand, that is not love. Love is the death of Jesus on the cross. Love means that I've got skin in the game. Love means that I am willing to sacrifice myself for the good of someone else. That's love. Posting something on Facebook or changing your profile picture or whatever it is that you do to express whatever it is that you do to express solidarity, that's great. That's great, but don't confuse that for love. When the standard measurement for love is the cross of Jesus Christ, I also want to talk about the evidence of love. So what is it? How do we know if, in fact, we are loving? What is the evidence of our love? Jesus addresses this in chapter 14. If you want to turn back one chapter, let's read just three verses from chapter 14 that, that talks about the evidence of love. If you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 15. Verse 21 of chapter 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that is the one who loves me. Chapter 14, verse 23, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. And in chapter 15, Jesus said, uh, Jesus said to the disciples, uh, if, you, if you love me, then you will obey my commandments. You are my friends. You are no longer 
you are no longer servants, but you are my friends because you obey me. My obedience is evidence of my love for God. My obedience is evidence of my love for God. Henry Blackaby says it this way. If you have an obedience problem, you have a love problem. See, Christians, listen, some of you are trying really hard to be obedient. You're you're working hard at, at being obedient. But what maybe you've neglected to understand is that you don't have an obedience problem. Ultimately, what you have is a is a love problem. Uh, obedience doesn't necessarily lead to love, but love will always result in obedience. Love is the evidence of obedience. And, and just in case we, we, we get distracted here, for some of you who maybe don't come to church very often, you're hearing this, and inside of your head you may be hearing something very different. That, that you're, you're hearing me say something about, well, you have to follow this list of rules in order to uh, meet God's expectations of you, and that God's love for you is dependent upon you meeting all of these rules. First of all, Jesus said, if you obey my commandment, and he told them what his commandment was, his commandment was that you love each other. That's his commandment. And this is what you need to know. If you are thinking, well, religion and, and my relationship with God is completely dependent on my ability to be obedient and, and to somehow satisfy God with my acts of obedience, what you need to understand is that God's love for me is not a result of my obedience, but of his sovereign will. God's love for you has never been, de- de- been dependent upon your obedience. Your obedience is fruit or evidence of your love for God, but your obedience is not why God loves you. How do I know that? Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. He said this, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, we hadn't done anything to be obedient When you were at your worst, when God was the farthest thing from your mind, when the law and the rules of God were the farthest thing from you, Jesus loved you then. And he does not love you more because you choose to live your life in accordance with his purpose and his plan for your life. Because he can't love you more than he loved you at the point of your deepest, darkest sin and shame. He loved you enough at that point to give his life for you. And he doesn't love you less When you become obedient. God loves you because he chose to love you. That's why he loves you. It's it's like when my children were born. Uh, The baby comes into the world and uh, you you love that baby. Why? Because it's done anything for you? No. (laughs) And actually for the next several years, that baby doesn't do a lot for you. It's, it's, It's... many times quite a bit of trouble. You don't love the child because the child has been obedient to you. You love the child as a choice, as a will. That's how God has chosen to love you. Listen to what he says in John 15, 16. You did not, Jesus talking to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. Now hear this. Christian, some of you think that you chose to be a Christian, that you chose to follow Jesus. What you need to understand is that long before you ever made that choice, he chose you first. That he chose you. He knew you, the scripture tells us, while you were still inside your mother's womb. And he loved you then. And he chose you. He made, the, he made a willful choice to follow after you. Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5 says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption 
Now, just stick with me for one second. Listen to what it says. I don't know how many of you walked in today and you felt like, you know what, I'm holy and blameless today. Anybody? Anybody. Not one of us. I'm holy and blameless. Listen to what this says. Because this has something to do with your future. God has chosen you before he created anything else. He chose you and he decided that you would be holy and blameless in his sight. And he loves you that way because of what Christ would come and do for us. As Jesus would lay down his life for us and pay for our sins, what God sees when he looks at you is holiness and blamelessness, righteousness, because he sees what Christ has done on our behalf. Listen, it's better than this. My, my obedience is evidence of my love for God. It's not, it's not what is required for God to love me. In fact, our ability to love God and therefore our desire to obey God is only possible because he first chose to love us. Now, now follow me on this. The only way you can really obey God is if you first love God. And the only way you can love God is if God first chooses to love you. 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. Because God chose to love you even when you were unlovely. And because of that love, then you can love him in return. And because you love him in return, obedience is the natural outflow of that decision to love God. And and this is what Jesus said. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now you love each other that way. What does that mean? That means that our love also has to be unconditional. I don't love someone because they meet my needs. I don't love someone because they obey me. I love them as an unconditional choice because God loved me that way. And that kind of love does have the power to change people. Many of you in here have been changed by that kind of love. That's what we're called to do. The measure of love, the evidence of love, and let's look finally at the consequence of love. Look at uh, verse 14 and 15 of John chapter 15, verse 14 and 15. This is what Jesus said. You are my, what's that next word? Friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command. Now, remember, what did we say? Why do we do? Why are we obedient? Because obedience is the product of our love for him. So you are my friends if you do what I command. Or you are my friends if you love me enough to produce the fruit of obedience. Okay? You're my friends. I no longer call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for everything that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. This is an amazing statement. The disciples are all around Jesus. They really don't yet comprehend what is about to happen, that he is about to go to the cross and give his life for them and for all of us. And Jesus in this moment was declaring a significant change in his relationship with his followers, both his disciples who were with him in that time and all of us who are here today. See, the disciples have been students, but today, Jesus says, is graduation day. From this point forward, you are to view yourselves not as just the disciples, not as just the students, but as his friends. I don't know how many of you have ever had a relationship with one of your old teachers. Uh, It's kind of an interesting, maybe a little awkward relationship at first, if you've ever uh, gone back and maybe you've entered into that kind of relationship. When I first came back to Southside, uh, my 
college voice professor, Dr. Bill Vessels, uh, was still an active member. His health allowed him to be an active member at that point. And, and I remember coming back in, and it felt strange because now, you know, here is this person who for four years poured into my life and was my teacher and my instructor, and now all of a sudden I'm back and I'm his pastor. So, you know, uh, what do I call him? You know, do I, do I call him Dr. Vessels like I always did? Do I call him Bill? Of course, I just called him Dr. Vessels. And one day he said, stop calling me that. Just call me Bill. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I can. Because the nature of the relationship had changed. What is Jesus saying to the disciples at this point? He's saying, guys, listen to me. Our relationship is about to change. I'm no longer going to call you servants. But, but if you love me, if you love me enough and you obey me, I call you my friends. The nature of the relationship is just about to shift. The Bible only refers to two characters as friends of God. The first one was Abraham, and the second one was Moses. Now, I just want you to think about this for a minute. If we take what Jesus said to the disciples 2,000 years ago in this speech, and we apply it to what Jesus is saying to us today, what is he telling us? He's telling us that we are being offered the kind of relationship with God that Abraham had with God. That Moses had with God. The level of intimacy you read about in the Old Testament where Abraham and Moses just seemed to approach God and they had this vibrant relationship with him. That's exactly what Jesus is saying you can have. That you can be a friend of God. See, the consequences of love is friendship with God. How many of you feel like in your life right now you can call God a friend? I mean, I know he's your creator, (laughs) that he is our judge, and he is high and lifted up like the choir sang earlier. All that is true. But to know the truth of all of those things and then to understand that Jesus said, you can be his friend if you love me and if you obey me. I just want to ask you this morning as we just think about this kind of love, a love that is measured not based on what I want or what I need at any given moment, but a love whose standard is the cross of Jesus, the self-sacrifice of Jesus. A a love that is evidenced through obedience to God. A love that's consequence is an intimate relationship with God. I just wonder today as you're here, are you in a relationship that lacks love? Think about it. Think about the relationships that you're in. Would you say that the fruit of those relationships looks anything like what Jesus is describing in John chapter 15? Do do other people see in you the standard of love that Jesus is describing to his disciples? A love that's willing to say, I love unconditionally. A love that's willing to say, I love sacrificially. When people look at you, is that the kind of love that you have, you can't manufacture that on your own. You're unable to manufacture that on your own. The only way you can have that kind of love is if you first receive the love of God. We love because he first loved us. If we don't first understand God's invitation to receive his love, we can never hope to then turn around and give that love to anybody else. I wonder how many of you are here today and you have misunderstood God's commandments and have seen his commands in your life as something less than loving. And so you view religion as just a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts, instead of understanding that God's command is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus is inviting you into. 
And finally, what will you do this week to love others the way that you've been loved? I mean, a billboard may be fine. Social media may be good. But ultimately, how will you love people selflessly, sacrificially? Maybe it's somebody in your own house. And maybe you're keeping a list. Remember, love keeps no record of wrongs. But maybe somewhere inside of you, you're keeping a list. And you're thinking to yourself, well, if he will only, then I will. Well, if she won't, then I'll stop. Maybe it's a relationship in your office. Maybe it's a relationship with one of your children or one of your friends. How can you take this kind of love into that relationship, into that environment? Because if you want a love that will change the world... This is the only kind of love that will do that. This is my commandment to you. That you love one another. Greater love has no one than this. That he would lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Because everything I've heard from my father I've made known to you. And I've called you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then you can ask the Father whatever you want, and he will give it to you. Why? Because that's what a friend does. This is my command. Love each other like this. Jesus, today we come to you and we um, confess that we fall painfully short of the kind of love that you're talking about. Lord, a love that's measured in the splinters of the cross of Christ. And Father, I recognize that uh, all of us in this room probably try to avoid splinters because they're painful. But I think about a splinter in my finger and how that would compare to your son on the cross. Father, may I be willing to love someone enough to bear the scar of that love. And may I know that that's how you've loved me. And may I confess to you that the only way that I can have any hope of loving another person that way is to first receive your incredible love for me. So Lord, as your people, as your disciples, we gather here today, we listen to this speech that you gave to your apostles And we hear the words and we hear the charge and the commandment. And we ask, God, that you would so fill us with the awareness of your incredible, amazing love for us that as we leave this place today, marriages would be changed, relationships would would be restored, the culture of companies and businesses throughout our community would change. Father, that neighborhoods uh, would be different because there are members of Southside Baptist Church living in them, loving like you've loved us. Father, we invite you to love the world through us, even as you loved us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.